0: I am Dr. Rapp and this is Appreciating Shakespeare, Series 1, Chapter 8, Whose Interpretation is Right? Three Principles of Interpreting Shakespeare. Principle 1. The players cannot keep counsel, they'll tell all. Teachers of acting often say that Shakespeare's drama has no subtext, only text. This is a distinct contrast to modern drama. Subtext means an implied dramatic meaning different from the literal meaning of the words. It usually involves irony of some kind, or an emotion that the character, given the circumstances, may be feeling without directly expressing it in words, as in Chekhov or Pinter. It may be present when social convention, as in Ibsen, or the threat of censorship, as in plays written under communist regimes, prevents the expression of a character's actual thought. The playing of subtext arose from an acting technique called the method, developed in the United States by the Actors Studio, based on the work of Russian director Konstantin Stanislavsky. The method is useful, sometimes essential, in the performance of the works of modern playwrights and filmmakers. Here is an example of how the acting of a modern script might require the development of subtext the passages from the New York Film Academy student resources page. Interior, living room. A man enters. A woman is sitting on the couch. Man. How are you? Woman. I'm fine. There are a thousand different ways to play this scene and they all hinge on the choice of subtext. Is the woman really fine? Does the man really care? By contrast, for the most part, characters in Shakespeare's plays say explicitly in their words what they mean. There are often layers of meaning, but generally there are not underlying, unstated thoughts different from what is said. Characters make explicit what is happening in the plot and what is going on in their minds. If they are clear in their aims or fears, they tell us. If they are undergoing inner conflict or doubts, or uncertainties they tell us that as well hence we need not speculate about what a character intends for the character will tell us and when one character happens to be attempting to deceive another he or she will tell us so explicitly either before or after perhaps in asides or soliloquies richard iii iago and othello edmund and king lear are obvious examples we do not need to guess that the mad beggar who appears on the stage in King Lear is really Edgar in disguise. He has told us already that he is about to disguise himself. Kent does the same. Hamlet tells us that he is going to play at madness, and often reminds us amidst his doing so that he is only acting. In short, Shakespeare's style of drama is to tell the audience what they need to know rather than leaving them to guess for themselves or leaving it to the actor to imply it merely by tone or gesture. The tones and gestures are governed inescapably by the spoken lines. This is the meaning of Hamlet's ironic assertion to Ophelia, in Act 3, Scene 2, Lines 141-142 to of Hamlet, that the players cannot keep counsel, they'll tell all. They are there to do just that. It is not the business of an actor to keep secrets from the audience or to leave them guessing once the play is over. In Shakespeare's theatre, the players say what the characters mean or the author and the actor have not done their jobs. This is why directors of Shakespeare will tell their actors play the text, not the subtext. At least understand clearly exactly what the words are saying before trying to shade them with tones and gestures. So principle one, in the effort to come to a valid interpretation of any Shakespearean speech, or scene, or character, or play, is to pay close attention to the meaning of the words. The words almost always say explicitly what the character means. Principle two. Know Shakespeare's context. That the players will tell all implies that knowing the meaning of the words and lines in the context of Shakespeare's own time is crucial. Comprehending what the players say and the characters mean depends upon knowing as much as possible about the background worldview discussed in the five sessions of Chapter 7. For example, when Osello finally confronts the villain Iago, who has seduced him to murder his wife, He says at Act 5, Scene 2, Line 286, I look down toward his feet, but that's a fable. What Shakespeare's audience knew, and what we might need a footnote to tell us, is that the devil was believed to appear with cloven hoofs instead of feet. Othello is thinking of Iago as a literal devil, though for that idea, and the notion that the devil could not be killed but only shamed, we need no footnote. For his next line is, If that thou beest a devil, I cannot kill thee. A line that illustrates the applicability of the idea that foreground is background, discussed in session 5 of chapter 7. Othello's final gesture is an even more important example from the same scene of how correct interpretation depends on knowing the Renaissance background a modern audience might find Othello's suicide heroic and admirable. He is executing the murderer of his wife, that is, himself. But in Shakespeare's time, as the prince explicitly says in Act 1, scene 2, lines 131 to 132 of Hamlet, the everlasting has fixed his canon against self-slaughter. In committing suicide rather than going to his knees in repentance, Othello is assuring his own damnation. This understanding of his action is prepared for by the earlier words of Graziano about Desdemona's father Brabantio at Act 5, Scene 2, Lines 206-209. to 209. Did he live now? This sight would make him do a desperate turn, yea, curse his better angel from his side and fall to reprobance. Desperate turn implies suicide, the consequence of despair, and reprobance here means damnation. In Graziano's speech, we see yet again an example of how in Shakespeare foreground is background. Graziano articulates the spiritual context of Othello's final act. But unless we know what was believed about the eternal consequences of suicide, We may misunderstand both Graziano's speech and the full horror of Othello's last choice. So principle two in arriving at valid interpretations of Shakespeare is to know the background and context as well as possible. Principle three. Know the critics' underlying assumptions. As C.S. Lewis argues in the discarded image, a book from which I quoted in the first session of chapter 7, the greatest change in modern history is not from medieval times to the Renaissance and Reformation, but rather from the medieval, Renaissance, and Reformation periods to the modern period. There have been many great advances in civilization since the height of the Middle Ages. Two of the most valuable have been the modern scientific method Which has lifted millions out of disease and poverty, and the establishment of limited governments that secure individual liberty and the rule of law. At the same time, many important figures in the modern intellectual history of the West, whatever you may think about their ideas, have contributed to the disintegration of that great medieval synthesis of the classical and Judeo Christian views of the world that held sway through the 17th century. And into the 18th, and that stands behind Shakespeare's work. What follows is a brief list of the main historical figures whose ideas have crept between us and the accurate appreciation of Shakespeare's art. It is offered as a caution against assuming their post Shakespearean premises in trying to understand reality as Shakespeare saw it. To review briefly, Plato had seen the human being as made up of three functions mind, heart, and body, or intellect, emotion, and physical need and desire. The medieval Christian believed that God breathed a divine soul into the human being to unify those functions into one person, and that the world was created by God and was good, and that man was created with free will and, though fallen through sin, could choose between good and evil as we saw in the first 3 sessions of chapter 7 these beliefs were fused in the medieval synthesis that shakespeare and his audience inherited they were increasingly rejected after shakespeare's time by among others the following figures rené descartes 1596 to 1650 split the human being into two a merely physical body nothing but a machine and a mind with no meaningful relation between them imaginable. Thomas Hobbes, 1588-1679, saw human life in the state of nature as solitary, nasty, poor, brutish, and short, and believed that all men, in the absence of an overarching political force, were inescapably in a war with all other men for power. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, 1712-1778, 1712-1778, to 1778, thought that the only source of good was nature itself and that all forms of society government, law, church, school, property, trade, the arts, were corruptions of the natural goodness of men. Authority was located not in God, rational thought, language, society, or tradition, but in nature, the body, and those emotions schooled only by nature charles darwin 1809 to 1882 imagined the human being to be the product of a merely material natural process driven by no divine purpose but only by itself in his vision moral standards and spiritual values are merely accidents of nature having no ultimate authority karl marx 1818-1883, applied the concept of unconscious natural evolution to human history, which is then seen as an inexorable movement from the oppression of the poor by the rich toward a universal egalitarian utopia. Men, values, arts, and spiritual aspirations are mere products of economic necessity and virtue lies only in the promotion of the utopian future, which, illogically, is at the same time supposed to be inevitable. Friedrich Nietzsche, 1844-1900, warrior against hypocrisy, announces the decay of religion and the death of God and returns to the heroic value system he sees in ancient epics according to which not virtue but only strength matters. There is no right, only might. Sigmund Freud, 1856-1939, finds Hobbes's war now fought within the human mind itself. Unconscious desire, the id, battles guilt-driven by fear, the superego, for control of the conscious self, the ego. No final peaceful resolution is possible short of the nothingness of death. Jean-Paul Sartre asserts that there is no God, no meaning of life, no nature of man, therefore no right and no wrong. To this moral nihilism, Sartre adds that the only sin is hypocrisy, not noticing the illogic of disapproving of hypocrisy after denying the existence of all values, including truth. Postmodernism the latest stage of the destruction of the medieval synthesis comes with the invasion of the british and american study of humanities by the theoretical approaches semiotics structuralism poststructuralism deconstruction postmodernism neo-marxism critical theory brought to bear on art and literature by theorists like linguist ferdinand de saussure 1857 to 1913 Freudian psychoanalyst Jacques-Marie-Émile Lacan, 1901-1981, to Marxist social and literary critic Michel Foucault, 1926-1984, to and Marxist semiotic deconstructionist Jacques Derrida, 1930-204, and their many followers, about whom critic Camille Paglia writes, Never have so many been so wrong about so much. Clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson, in his book Twelve Rules for Life, adds It is almost impossible to overestimate the nihilistic and destructive nature of this philosophy. These modern ideas, some of which we may ourselves hold consciously or unconsciously, can obscure for us the meaning of the lines that Shakespeare wrote. Interpretations based on them turn heroes like Henry V his brother Prince John in Henry IV Part II, and Duke Vincentio in Measure for Measure, into villains. The humble, like Cordelia in King Lear and Desdemona in Othello, into egotists or milksops. The virtuous, like Portia in Merchant of Venice and Helena in All's Well That Ends Well, into hypocrites. The chaste, like Isabel in Measure for Measure, into frigid prudes. And the innocent, like Hermione and Polixenes in The Winter's Tale, into suspects. Hence, principle three in making valid interpretations of Shakespeare's plays is to beware of the underlying assumptions the interpreter is making. If he or she is assuming the truth of post-Shakespearean ideas and bringing them to bear on the interpretation of Shakespeare's plays, it is likely that the results will be misleading superimposing our narrow, specifically modern preoccupations upon the plays of Shakespeare can easily rob us of the experience of meanings that Shakespeare meant us to have, meanings relevant and valuable not only for his own time, but for us and for all time. One last question. Whose mirror is it, anyway? In Act 3, Scene 2 of Hamlet, At lines 21-23, to the prince asserts to the troupe of actors come to perform at Elsinore that the purpose of the art of playing, meaning theatrical drama, is to hold the mirror up to nature, to show virtue her feature, scorn, meaning what is worthy of scorn, her own image. In short, art is meant to reflect reality as accurately as possible. In all times, directors must adjust productions of Shakespeare to be faithful to that purpose. And because times change, in order to make Shakespeare's meanings accessible to their own time, place, and audiences, directors often find it necessary to cut lines from Shakespeare's plays, alter the times and places in which they are set, restyle costumes, redistribute characters' lines, or change their genders, introduce subtext through director's notes, or sound lighting and video cues. In the hands of good directors, who are knowledgeable about and loyal to Shakespeare's meanings, such alterations may successfully represent Shakespearean intentions and themes. I have seen a production of Coriolanus that was excellent, though it was set in the context of modern American warfare, and Menenius was portrayed as a southern senator. The director had used the alterations to serve, not to substitute for, Shakespeare's thematic intentions in the play. There have been excellent productions of Twelfth Night set in the 1920s and of Hamlet performed in modern dress. Too often, however, the pursuit of modern relevance causes such manipulations to confuse, mask, or radically alter the actual themes and meanings of the plays. When that happens, a knowledgeable audience comes away feeling robbed. They were promised Shakespeare and were given, instead, a TV soap opera or a propaganda vehicle. Here are a few famous examples. Orson Welles' 1937 Mercury Theatre production of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar was lauded for making the play come alive by giving Caesar's Rome the overtones of fascist Italy And Nazi Germany. Caesar was dressed like Mussolini. Instead of the wild mob, it was the fascist secret police who murdered Cinna the poet. The topical horror of the scene stopped the show. However, the production obscured Shakespeare's intention to show the assassination of Caesar as a world historical disaster rather than a triumph of the people's legitimate revolution against a tyrant. Instead of portraying Caesar's assassins as the victims of tragic pride, it turned them into heroes of resistance mercilessly hunted by the next generation of fascist demagogues. Thus the production created the impression that Shakespeare's play was meant to promote not legitimate monarchy but resistance to fascism. It may have been explosively powerful theater, but it wasn't Shakespeare. In 1948, Laurence Olivier, the most effective and compelling Shakespearean actor of his age, directed and starred in a film version of Hamlet. His interpretation of the play is focused on two clichés of modern thought. The protagonist's supposed unconscious Oedipus complex, a reading influenced by the writing of Freudian psychoanalyst Ernest Jones, 1879-1958, And an excess of self conscious thought characteristic of and mistrusted by the modern mind. Gertrude's bed becomes a central physical focus of the drama, and in the voiceover introducing the play, Olivier intones, This is a play about a man who could not make up his mind. Both of these ideas are not only extraneous to the meanings and themes Shakespeare's language actually develops in the play. Which is in fact about the hero's moral and spiritual fall and subsequent regeneration, but obstruct any possibility of the audience's perceiving those meanings and themes. The play's depiction of moral and spiritual responsibility in the context of divine revelation is buried under an extra Shakespearean layer of popular ideas that the modern age inherits from Rousseau the worship of emotion. And the mistrust of rational thought. If you want to see Olivier the Shakespearean at his best, find films of the productions of Henry V, 1944, and Richard III, 1955, which he directed and starred in, and of King Lear, 1983, directed for TV by Michael Elliott, in which Olivier played the king. Peter Brook's film version of King Lear, 1971 was made under the influence of Polish critic Jan Kott 1914 2001 who interpreted Shakespeare as prefiguring the nightmare of 20th century history to which Kott's own support of Stalin made a minor contribution and the theater of the absurd the film makes shakespeare's play relentlessly bleak militating against the play's actual subject a profound reinforcement in a fictional pre-christian world of the Christian idea that the possibility of redemption through purgatorial suffering is built into the structure of creation, among other betrayals, Brooke gives some of the villain Edmund's lines to the virtuous Edgar and vice versa, thereby making the play imply that there is no significant difference between good and evil or good man and bad, the farthest thing from the actual intention of Shakespeare's words. Another example of the way in which a director may, for the sake of topical relevance, make choices that obscure Shakespearean meanings is the depicting of strong male friendships as homoerotic. Antonio in The Merchant of Venice, for example, is not an unrequited gay lover, but an example of the ancient ideal of selfless and self-sacrificial male friendship. Directors who force eros onto the friendship in their interpretations Rob us of valuable images of true friendship in favor of a cliche of popular entertainment. I will discuss the question of Shakespeare's own sexuality in the podcast of Chapter 11 on the Sonnets. Hamlet's exhortation to hold as twere the mirror up to nature was meant to encourage the players to make the play as authentic and transparent a portrayal as possible of what it really means to be a human being living in the world. Instead, like those in charge of the productions described earlier, some directors choose to set up a mirror that reflects the superficial and commonplace notions that the audience members bring with them into the theatre. The practical effect of such productions is to obscure, often intentionally, anything in Shakespeare's vision of reality that might challenge the audience to greater spiritual depths. Such productions may be theatrically powerful, but a sensible person on leaving the theatre after these kinds of productions might well say, if that's what you want the play to mean, why don't you leave Shakespeare alone and write your own damn play? I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare.